Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about The Autopsy by Michael Shea. This was published originally in 1984. This is a, a pretty big story. It's a novella. And so we're going to do a two-parter on it where we split this into a discussion episode and a recap episode. This is the recap episode. It's the first one. Uh, this story, like, well, everything that we do at this point was nominated by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this story. I'd never read Michael Shea before and uh, really glad that we did. So I just want to say thank you so much for, well, for nominating this. And then also, I guess, thank you to all the other Patreon supporters who voted for it. Yeah, I'm really excited about this too. I've heard nothing but great things about Michael Shea. Uh, and he, you know, he even overlaps with you know, Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast to some degree, and that he picked up some of Jack Vance's Dying Earth stories with Nift the Lean and um, got those published. And he's just this. He's a fantastic writer. This story did not let me down. His reputation really does precede him here. I'm also excited to talk about this because I think Shea is doing something that, I don't know, we almost take for granted now, but I don't think was too common in the 80s when he wrote this story, which is kind of the blending of tropes from all of these different types of stories. So, you know, stay tuned for the discussion episode if you want to hear us talk about that. But we have to recap the story first. So, Glenn, what actually happens in the autopsy? Right. Yeah. This story is set contemporary to its writing. So the setting is the early 1980s and we are in the Appalachian part of the United States. You know, might be North Carolina, might be Pennsylvania. Uh, doesn't really matter all that much other than that it's Appalachia and we're in a coal mining town. Our protagonist is 57-year-old Dr. Winters, who doesn't live in this town, though he does live in this county. And he works for the county coroner's office as a medical examiner. And it is in this capacity that he has come to town at night under a moonless sky. And the first thing that we learn about Dr. Winters, though, is that he has stomach cancer and he is shortly going to die from it. And he knows this as well. But he is keeping it to himself. And one way he is dealing with it is to give his cancer an identity. And, uh... He talks to it. And this will come back, though it's not going to come back in the way that I expected, I will say. Now, given that the story is called The Autopsy and uh, we have a man dying from cancer, I was certain that we were in for his autopsy, at least, you know, here on the first page, right before we know any more. This actually felt, well, it felt a bit like a trick to me, Brandon, but I wonder how that worked for you. I, I think it did work for me. I felt, you know, in reading the first page and then a little spillover to the next page, I felt this real sense of momentum building up around Dr. Winters with all of the language about death, you know, that Dr. Winters is on death's business and language like that, that I didn't think his cancer was going to be the thing to get him on the end. Like Dr. Winters to me was presented more as an agent of death than as a victim of death. But I did feel more broadly speaking, that the placement of cancer in the story, especially as it is so front-loaded, needed to be justified in some way. And I do have mixed feelings about the way cancer is used in this story as a story element. We'll be able to dive into that later. But, you know, I mean, as much as I like this story, I do have a thing against people talking to body parts. Like, I don't like it. It always makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and I think that's its function here, too. I guess it communicates to us a real sense of loneliness or alienation 
that Dr. Winters carries around with him. So I guess I guess that works in some way. The cancer does function in really interesting ways in the story. Yeah, even his name screams that, right? Winter, right? Which is gives us a sense of, well, an ending, right? The ending of the year and also this sense of death, but also this sense of of isolation and and loneliness. And yeah, I think I agree with you, though we'll get maybe into it more specifically in the discussion episode about the cancer here, though I think it does matter to the plot of the story, but maybe also especially to the character here, that he is dying and he knows it, but he's also, you know, struggling to to deal with that in some way. So I think he's a he's a pretty richly drawn character. But I, I'm looking forward to having that conversation about the way that the cancer functions in the story. But before we get there, we need to uh really get into this plot. So let's actually get <laughs> to the main attraction here. Dr. Winters is here in this town to do an autopsy because there has been some kind of incident in the mine, uh, an accident that has taken a a lot of lives. And the situation is fraught because the mine's insurance company is worried that it's going to have to pay out large sums of money to the families of the deceased. Uh, That is, unless it can be ruled that the incident at the mine had nothing to do with the mine itself. And specifically, there has been a rumor that there was a bomb that caused some kind of collapse in the mine. And if there are any traces of a bomb in the corpses, then the insurance company won't have to pay. Now, this all gets very hard-boiled when we learn that the county coroner, which is an elected position, we learn that the county coroner is in the pocket of Fordham Mutual Insurance Company and so has instructed Dr. Winters to find some reason, any reason, to deny these payments. And if he doesn't, he will be fired. And the sheriff in town, the sheriff knows all about this. I mean, not this particular conversation, of course, but he knows about the general corruption of the county government. Of course, this is right up my alley. I adore all of this in the story. This definitely had me hearing like a a lone saxophone in a rainy alley, though that is actually not the direction the story is going. But I love this setup. It's a real shame this story's not going in that direction because I too love this kind of small town graft and corruption, you know, small town crime stuff. As long as it's hard boiled, I should say, and not overly melodramatic, uh, something like Broad Church, maybe, which is, you know, the, just the, the, the way. Listen, I like stories that are more about, you know, a hard boiled guy coming into a corrupt town and not about how the crime has affected each person in the town. That weighs on me a little bit. So yes, this story is going exactly in the direction that I love. And the only thing that could make this part of the story even more hard-boiled would be the presence of booze, uh, which it turns out is here in the story quite a bit. And it also turns out that Doc Winters and Sheriff Craven are drinking with some level of abandon here. These guys are drinking a lot throughout their conversation. And this drinking that they're doing has two effects, I think, on the story. The first is that it uses the imagery. Shay is using this imagery of drinking coffee and bourbon and the men refilling one another's cups in order to communicate to us, the readers, a really strong sense of camaraderie and friendship and fellowship between these two men, their friends. And that's really great shorthand here. I, I, I'm struggling to think of a time where I've seen um, this kind of companionship demonstrated through the sharing of drink so well in another work of fiction. It's just great shorthand for their friendship. It's great character building. And the second effect I think that it has on the story is that these men 
you know, it tells us that these men aren't just drinking because they're friends. They're drinking because they are stealing themselves for some really nasty business that is going to uh, both need to be explained to Dr. Winters by Sheriff Craven. And then Dr. Winters is going to have to finish the investigation through um, the uh, investigating the bodies of these dead men. So this is just a great friends hanging out drinking scene, I guess, uh, is what I'm trying to say. I absolutely love this. One detail I will point out is that, although you're right to say that they are both drinking quite a bit, Dr. Winters is self-consciously drinking less than the sheriff is. And this tells us quite a bit. I mean, one, Dr. Winters knows he's about to use a scalpel. He's about to have to go to work. So he needs to have you know possession of his faculties to to do that. But also he doesn't know what's happened yet. And he hasn't seen any of it yet. But the sheriff is about to tell us the story of what's been going on in this town. And we're going to learn how rattled and frazzled he is. And so he is drinking, right, to soothe his nerves at this point, to deal with the trauma of what's been going on. But he is also pounding coffee as much as he's pounding booze because he has been up and been on for a long, long time, which Dr. Winters hasn't had to do yet. And Shay doesn't need to explain any of that to us, right? He just shows that to us by just one line where we have Dr. Winters say he doesn't need any more, but then we get that the sheriff is getting a, getting a refill. It's great characterization. It's it's really awesome. Also, I mean, it just feels like the 80s here. We're just like having a bottle of bourbon in your desk in your <laughs> office. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's normal. I mean, somehow that was 40 years ago and that was a norm, but uh, we won't get into that. I'm really glad you mentioned that this kind of all happens over the course of one line or like a few lines, because I want to mention here, even though we're still early on in a pretty long story, we haven't really even gotten to the exposition of the mystery yet, that Shay is actually super economical with his writing. And I love this conversation between Winters and and Craven. And in fact, the first third of this story, maybe even the, the first half of this story, is just exposition that takes the form of conversation between these two men. And I think, uh, you know, just as a piece of writing advice, if you're struggling with a way to communicate exposition in something that you're writing you could learn a lot from the way that Shay leans on not just the genre tropes of the procedural here to keep his writing economical, but also including in the exposition a relationship where it's clear that one of the parties really does need to know something and that both parties in the exposition scene are glad to be in each other's company. It just suffuses this exposition with the real just pleasant energy, even though it's grim business that they're talking about here. There's lots of warmth here, in other words, for what turns out to be a truly horrifying tale. You know, this relationship, I'll say finally, is also a crucial motivating factor in Doc Winter's decisions at the end of the story, as we'll see. So she has a lot to do here, and it's masterfully handled. Right. It is all going to come back. But uh, as you say, we haven't even gotten to the exposition about what's <laughs> what's happening here. So let's get to it because there is more going on in this town that Dr. Winters doesn't know about. And now at this point, the sheriff is going to fill him in. This is actually a pretty massive chunk of narrative here. People have been going missing in town for two months, about 
one a week, one person a week. And the sheriff is pretty self-critical, I will say, as he relates this. He and his deputies didn't stop a single murder, despite their best efforts. And he just says he feels useless and worthless because of this. But they did eventually get lucky. About a week ago, they found a body in the woods. And there is a, a grisly description here that I will not quote, but I will say it's pretty pretty serious. And the body doesn't belong to anyone in town. But after some fine police work, they learned that this was Abel Doherty, a mill hand in a neighboring town who'd been missing for a while. And one of the sheriff's deputies had even seen Abel before he was murdered. He'd been at the trucker's tavern drinking and uh, also being cheerfully belligerent to one of the locals. And this was a man named Joe Allen. But the thing is, Abel kept insisting that Joe Allen was not Joe Allen, but in fact was a man named Sykes he used to work with at the mill. Now, it turns out that Abel was right. Joe Allen really was Sykes. Sykes himself had been missing from his home for nine weeks, coinciding with a uh, big meteor shower that fell near where he lives out in the countryside. It seems to the sheriff that Sykes must be the killer, and so now the police go and check out the room that Sykes is renting under the guise of Joe Allen, and uh, they're going to go get him from the mine as well. But they find something in his room before they get to the mine. And what they find is a sphere that is a little bit bigger than a basketball, and it's made of something that's not metal or glass, but is kind of like both. It's also heavy, like very heavy. And you can kind of see into it as well. And there appears to be circuitry in there. And so, you know, maybe it's a bomb. Now, they put that in the back of the squad car and they head up to the mine to back up the deputies who are going to arrest Sykes. And then Sykes is just kind of mysteriously there, even though he should still be in the mine and he's going straight for the car. But instead of getting in the car, he grabs this sphere and he makes a run for it and he runs straight into the mine with it. And about two minutes later, when Sykes must be deep in the mine, the whole thing blows up. And so that's the backstory. And uh, now I will say instead of that lone saxophone, Brandon, I'm definitely hearing the X-Files main theme. Yeah, you're right, too. This story would make a near perfect season two episode of the X-Files, to be sure. I mean, Mulder and Scully would show up after the end of this story, you know, after the end of this exposition, and Scully would have to do her own autopsy on Doc Winters while Mulder is out with Sheriff Craven or something interviewing folks. Then the folks would say something like, wow, Sam was always a good guy. You'd never have guessed he would switch identities and eat somebody, which is, you know, what happened to that body that you wouldn't describe. You know, the point is that this story, this mixture of the procedural, you know, cop detective genre combined with specifically weird fiction, but more broadly harder at this point is totally a precursor to the X-Files. And of course, this is something we will in part take up in the discussion, as I said at the top of the show. But, you know, the the facts of the case here are really gruesome. I think you handled the exposition beautifully, Glenn, because it is a huge chunk of text. I mentioned there's cannibalism involved here. That's going to become a larger feature of the horror of the story. I feel like every possible sociopathic and psychopathic trope is used to describe this Joe Allen character. And there's reason for that, too. Uh, but I wonder, though, also if it's a good idea to get this many facts of the case before beginning the autopsy. You know, at the start of this exposition, 
that describes all the facts of the case, it's really hard to see how the missing people and the mutilated body found in the woods are going to connect to the bodies found in the mines. And as I was reading, I thought that somehow the missing people were going to have been the people found in the mines or, you know, in the explosion in the mines. That also turns out to not be the case. And so at the end of the day here, what we have, what this exposition really is, what it's doing in terms of character work is showing us a sheriff who really needs to unburden himself or at least share the details of the case. Even though he doesn't understand the connections between all the elements, he wants to share the details with somebody who can handle them. And then we have, uh, you know, the conflict here, which is really this medical examiner who has come to perform these autopsies or to examine the bodies to make sure that the insurance company doesn't have to pay out any claims to the dead miners' families. And so there's actually a massive amount going on here, apart from a great, like, spooky, scary tale in the form of exposition. All of this other tension, all of this character work is is present as well in the way that Shay is communicating to this. And I do think it blends together really well, even though at this point in the story, I'm feeling a little off balance. And it could have been just because I was tired when I was reading it. Who knows? Um, and it's really hard to see then how the different parts of the story are going to be able to put back together. Shay does pull it off, I promise you. And and to that note, I feel like Shay is really working at the the top of his abilities as a craftsman. I agree. And and going back to uh, something you said earlier, Brandon, about how like, hey, there's cannibalism happening here. And that's fairly obvious in the description of the body. We probably should have said at the top of the show that this story, I mean, it's called the autopsy. Uh, there's a lot of body horror going on here. That's, uh, as you and I have said many times, not just generally our thing, but for me in particular, it's something I'm rather squeamish about. This will come back in the discussion episode as well. And so, yeah, I'm just not going to say a lot of these details. It's my job to, but I'm just not going to. Brandon, you may bring them up to flesh that out, uh, so to speak, I suppose, from time to time, but I'm going to go pretty light on those, uh, those descriptions. And uh, it is, in fact, now time for the autopsy. Now, this town does not have a morgue, also doesn't have a hospital, and so the bodies are at a defunct ice plant on the edge of town. And Dr. Winters is here alone now to do his work overnight while the sheriff waits for the results, also hopefully finally gets some sleep. And what follows is a fairly technical and even protracted description of Dr. Winters performing autopsies on some of the bodies. This is an eight-page section, but I will try to sum it up actually in one sentence. There are really two things going on here. The first is that it's creepy to be alone in this place at night, and Dr. Winters is on edge and is seeing and hearing things. The other is that Dr. Winters is well, he's really invested in figuring out what happened. And in particular, he's invested in figuring out what this sphere really was because he does not believe it was built to be a bomb. And I have to say, Brandon, that although I do want to keep this part of the narrative short, it really creeped me out. This was some highly effective horror writing. I agree. It felt to me as though Shay had really done his homework. I didn't search all of the autopsy terms or body terms, some of which I knew that Shay uh, has put into the story. I decided I was just going to kind of buckle in and enjoy the ride. And 
Jay does use a lot of jargon in this section, and there's lots of technical explanations of what Dr. Winters is up to. Um, but that's not all that's there. You know, I was really worried that this story would be unpleasant to read, that it would make me really squeamish. But the technicality of the autopsy procedure does offer some distance from the gruesome reality of cutting and examining bodies that Dr. Winter is engaged with. And, you know, that itself is 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 kind of a brilliant technique. There's a lot of gallows humor to be found within Winter's internal monologue. And ultimately, this kind of creates a light tone for what is kind of a really technical description of a body examination by a medical examiner. But right, you know, these are the autopsies that we've finally arrived at you know, when we picked up a story called The Autopsy. I mean, there had to be autopsies here. We knew what we were buying when we opened this book. And I think Shay's done an amazing job. There is such great effective horror writing, as you've said, Glenn, but there's also so much else to propel us through these autopsy scenes. We're invested in the mystery that we've read about. We're invested in Winter's antagonist antagonistic relationship with his boss, which Winters thinks a lot about while he's looking at the bodies. And he's trying to determine whether or not he wants to find evidence of a bomb, or if he does find evidence of a bomb, will he hide the evidence in order to keep his job? Like, what are Winters' real motivations? We're still not quite sure. And then we learn that Winters actually doesn't want to perform nine autopsies. So he's going to take every shortcut that he can. And it seems like Winters is in a poor mental state also. I mean, he's talking to his cancer a lot. He's thinking negative thoughts about his boss and his job and the end of his life. He's been drinking lots of bourbon, which is something he continues to do when he feels he needs to take his break, when he feels he needs to take a break and collect his thoughts after examining a body. So it's just it's just so much here besides the the cutting of bodies and looking for evidence of a bomb and whether or not the corrupt insurance company is going to pay these families out. And then just as we're growing weary, perhaps, of all this technical stuff, and we need a story beat to show up, a discovery of a kind, Dr. Winters does discover something strange in two of the bodies that he looks at. And it looks like something is either tunneled through these bodies or shot through them. And that could be bomb debris. So now he's got to investigate that further. And now, we as readers really just need to hang in there to figure out what's going on. And that's what Winters does next. He sees this tunneling through two bodies. One of the bodies lay between the two bodies that had the weird tunneling in them. And that's what's going to take us into the into the final act here. I should also say that Dr. Winters has access to photographs, right? The sheriff's department, the police officers took photographs of the crime scene when they arrived. And so part of Winters's job is, you know, in addition to doing the autopsies, is actually to forensically recreate what happened at the crime scene, which seems like a ton of work for this one person to do who's just been <laughs> dispatched from like the county seat on short notice in the middle of the night. And I think, you know, this also just feels very 1980s to me, right? Where I think definitely by the 1990s, I think we all feel that certainly the FBI or at least the state police would be called in at this point to handle this workload. But we get this strong sense with Dr. Winters of a high degree of competence 
though, right? It's not just that he's, you know, invested in solving this mystery because it's personally intriguing to him and because he's personally concerned about the the families of the the victims, but also because he's just incredibly competent at his job. He knows exactly what he's what he's doing, what he's up to, which is a very different feeling, I think, than we, this story would have if it had been written even just 10 years later. But it's a touch that I really liked. I do. I love this kind of 80s vibe. I guess that's why Stranger Things was such a huge hit. The 80s feels like the Wild West to us now, even though it was like, you know, a hyper-regulated period of American <laughs> history, but uh, not as bad as what we're living in now. No, definitely not. But uh, that's a tangent that uh, we, we won't go down because as you suggested a few minutes ago, uh, it is really time to do the final act and then take this story home and then go get ready for our discussion episode. So yeah, it is finally time to perform the autopsy on Sykes's body or, or Alan's body, I should say, really, as the, the story refers to it. But Dr. Winters doesn't want to. He senses that something is off, and just as he's about to get the body, he hears a strange noise. And then the door to the bodies opens on its own, and, uh, well, there's a body there. It's Joe Allen, of course, and what's happening here is a kind of invasion of the body snatchers thing. The sphere was a tiny little spaceship for the larval stage of a sophisticated insect-like space alien. They're small, and in their adult form, they don't live out in the world on their own. Rather, in their larval state, they crawl into the brain of some other organism and then develop into their adult form, which allows them to control the body that they are now inhabiting. Uh, also, they eat people, which is uh, why this has this uh, serial killer vibe here and also the horribly mutilated corpses. And the explosion was simply the alien destroying his spaceship so that humans couldn't examine it. And the alien has survived the explosion, but the body he's in, Alan, is not in good shape. He's going to need another one now. And Making that transfer, this is no easy task now that he's in his adult form. It's going to require surgery. It's going to require an actual transplant, a surgical transplant. And of course, there's not anyone to do it for him. Nonetheless, he is going to do this. He is going to try to transplant himself into Dr. Winters and then just carry on with his, well, his serial killing, his eating of humans. And the alien does get Dr. Winters bound up and is able to cut into its own host's body in order to get itself out. This is all much more grisly than I'm, sure. I'm describing here. I'm trying to keep it as tame as possible. <laughs> PG. But yeah, PG, right. I really, I would like to keep it G, but PG, maybe even <laughs> PG-13 is the best we're getting here. At any rate, Dr. Winters has two things going for him. First, he's really clever. Second, he's already been living on borrowed time because of his stomach cancer. And so making out of this situation alive is just not a priority for him. And so Dr. Winters takes a surgical knife and cuts himself and then uses his blood to write a message for the sheriff to find in the morning. And the message is this, mind parasite from Alan in me, cut all till find 1500 gram mass nerve fiber. And the last action for Dr. Winters here, then, is to kill himself, which he does in a pretty gruesome fashion, 
at the exact moment that the alien is transplanted into him and no longer has control over the Allen body. And Dr. Winters dies with a smile on his face. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, this bit, this end of the story with all of the all of the actual like body horror surgery stuff and Dr. Winter's final actions that he takes. Uh, this is where I actually had to look away from the story for a moment to collect myself. You know, Shay sets things up so that we can squirm really at the doctor's activities. Um, but we know also that the doctor isn't really feeling any pain. You know, the alien has put the doctor on some, under some kind of local anesthetic. So Dr. Winters is mostly numb, but it's still horrifying, you know? And uh, then on top of all of this, there's this kind of curveball thrown in the final act of the story where we have this alien and all this stuff with the alien is great. I mean, it's something we're going to look really closely at in our next episode, We'll look at questions maybe like, what does the alien suggest to us about what genre this story is? I mean, just within the text itself, we see that the alien is an evil being, an evil being, or at least evil by our standards. It's not just serial killing and mimicking cannibalism. It's taking delight or pleasure in the psychic torture of its hosts, and it feeds upon that as much as it feeds upon human bodies. And there's also explicit associations between the alien and demons, not to mention stuff brought up about the classic weird fiction, mind-body split, and substance dualism. So all of this is going to be highlighted in our next discussion episode as we examine how this story functions on a number of different levels. And Glenn tells us whether or not the recent adaptation holds up. And on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. We hope you stick around for our discussion episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Next time, as Brandon said, we will be back with our discussion episode for this story. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>